Now, I originally planned to continue where I left off last week by uh, taking a, a look at Israel's prophets and kings. Not all of them, so don't get nervous. We're not going to go through all those books. The writing prophets of Israel were all Hebrews. And their books are characterized as major or minor according to the length of the book. Prophets considered the foretelling of the future, although they dealt with present events, they considered the foretelling of the future as the essence of their function. And the prophecies of a coming Messiah were the light that continuously shined in some very dark times in the history of Israel. The, the word Messiah is derived from the verb Meshach, so we pronounce it Mashiach, and it means to anoint for a sacred purpose. Jesus was God's Messiah, his anointed one. Now, prior to Christ's birth, there were godly men and women in Israel. They were, they were looking for this anointed one, this, this Messiah. Among them were Mary and Joseph, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, and Joseph of Arimathea. Some of the apostles were waiting for him. But oddly enough, today's message is, is centered on the prophecy of a man who was not a Hebrew prophet. He was a Gentile, possibly a Midianite or an Aramean. And his name was Balaam. We know very little bit about him. But he is one of the most mysterious characters in the Old Testament, whose name actually appears 56 times in the New King James Version, 47 of them in the book of Numbers. And they cover an episode in, in Israel's wandering in the wilderness before they would go into the promised land. Balaam is mentioned in the book of Joshua. He's mentioned by Nehemiah. He's mentioned by Micah. He's mentioned by second, in 2 second Peter. He's mentioned in Jude. And he's mentioned in the book of Revelation. He was a pagan, a seer, a man who practiced the forbidden arts, including divination. But what I find really very, very interesting is there is more said about Balaam in the Bible than 10 of the apostles combined. Yeah, let that sink in. Joshua 13.22 says, The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. Now, one other very interesting fact about Balaam is that his name appears on an inscription that was found in Deir Allah, Jordan, in 1967. And that inscription was dated to 800 B.C. Now, the Israelites would have met Balaam around 1400 B.C., so that find, that, that inscription, was long after Balaam died, but it represents the first prophecy from the ancient Western Semitic world 
to be found outside of the Old Testament. The prophecy of Balaam. The inscription was written in red and black ink on a plaster that was affixed to a wall that had collapsed during an earthquake, possibly the earthquake mentioned in Amos chapter 1 and verse 1, which occurred during the reign of King Uzziah of Judah. So here is this very intriguing person, Balaam. Balaam was an unrighteous man, which is surprising given all the attention that he gets, right? But God, God doesn't hide anything in Scripture. Balaam was an unrighteous man. Ronald Allen says his name appears in the Hebrew text. We don't no certainty really about his name, but it appears in the Hebrew text with the suggestion, the destroyer of the people. And I would like to note, before we get into the story in Numbers, three things. The way of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, and the error of Balaam. And we'll begin with the way of Balaam. And we have a scripture to this in 2 Peter 2.15. These are speaking of false teachers. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's the way of Balaam. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. But it says here, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was not a false prophet. He was another kind of a prophet. He was in it for profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. And the, the, the words there in Peter where it says that a man's voice coming out of the donkey restrained his madness, the word madness literally means out of your mind. Someone who was out of their mind. And it got me thinking, that is what greed can do to you. The love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil but all manner of evil, all kinds of evil. The teacher in a class of little boys was telling them the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You're probably all familiar with that. She told about Lazarus, plight of Lazarus, the beggar. She told about how he suffered down here, everything that he went through, and she painted it really dark, very black. Then she told about the rich man, all that he enjoyed in life, then she moved on to the other side and told about what happened to him after his death. He went into Hades, to hell. She told about the poor man who was in Abraham's bosom at that time. And the class of little boys was really solemn, paying attention. And in order to clinch it, she asked, which you, would you rather be, the rich man or Lazarus, the beggar? Well, kids are really smart. So one of the little fellows answered. She waited for a few moments for it to sink in. He put up his hand and he said, I'd like to be the rich man here and Lazarus hereafter. That's what kids would do, right? But I think there's a little bit of Balaam, someone said, in all of us. The error of Balaam. 
The error of Balaam was, I believe, that he assumed God would curse or forsake Israel because of their many sins. In Exodus 23.20, he says, He has not observed iniquity in, in Jacob, or nor has he seen wickedness in Israel, wilderness in, in Israel. Now, you think about the wilderness wanderings, they committed all kinds of sins. So it's obviously that God was not overlooking their sins. Uh, or didn't see their sins. He judged their sins in the wilderness, but it did not ultimately keep him from keeping his promise. And I think Balaam was a little bit troubled with that. He had to speak the truth, but I think he thought that for sure God at some point is going to judge their sins and I can be part of bringing a curse upon Israel and, and get money in doing it because he was, he was a prophet for hire. Merrill Unger says he was ignorant of God's election of Israel as a nation. And the immutability of his choice, as it says in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the calling of God are, are irrevocable. And I think he was ignorant of, of Israel's preservation by the power of God, that God would keep them. And then you have the doctrine of Balaam in Revelation 2, 14. I have a few things against you. Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamos. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Well, what did Balaam do? If you know the story, he led the Israelites to be seduced by, by the, the Moabite women and join, and join with Baal of Peor. He yoked themselves together with idols. Harold Wilmington put it this way, he could not turn God away from Israel, but he did turn Israel away from God, which led to the death of 24,000 Israelites at that time. You can read about that in Numbers 31, 16. Robert McCabe says, by associating, associating with the Moabites, developing improper relationships with their women and worshiping false gods, God's holy nation, which was called to be separate, was corrupted through the advice of Balaam. So while Balaam could not pronounce a curse upon Israel, turned God against Israel, he was able to turn them against God, to corrupt them through an inclusivistic approach. Join with them. Just join with them. So they were seduced that way. So in Numbers 22, we have the background here of the story, beginning in verse 1. I call him the, the vagabond prophet. And it, it begins in Numbers 22 when Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam to curse Israel in an effort to prevent Israel's conquest of Canaan. They thought they were going to be conquered by Israel. So they, so they, they wanted Balaam to curse Israel. The plan did not work, needless to say. But read in Numbers 22, verse 1. Then the children of Israel moved, and they camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at this time. 
And he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of the people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. He evidently had a, a reputation of bringing curses upon people that came to pass. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them for, from out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. That was Balaam's reputation. What Balak did not know was that God would bless those who blessed Israel and cursed those who who and cursed those who cursed Israel. And that goes back to the original promise in Genesis chapter 12. But the pronouncement of a curse is a reminder that Israel would always be the source of controversy among the nations. That's why God says, I'll bless them that bless you. I'll curse them that curse you. And in saying that, he is saying, Israel, whom I have chosen, will always be at the center of controversy in the world among the nations. And what he was, in effect, saying is people would choose sides for or against the Jews. And boy, don't we see that today. Everywhere, all over the world, it's still continuing. Right here in this country, on our campuses in particular. Well, God then speaks to Balaam, verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee. He, he was the prophet for prophet in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, lodge here tonight. And I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to overpower them and drive them out. So he's, he's telling it like it is. And God says to Balaam, You will not go with them. You will not curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the prince of Balaam, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. So far, so good, right? Or so it seems. But I want to suggest to you his heart, his heart was not right with God. And I think this will come out. He had other motives. Verse 14, And the princes of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and they said, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. So there, there's the great enticement. He's, he's, he's promising him riches. And I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
But why would you bring up silver and gold if, unless you were thinking about silver and gold? So again, maybe it's just a little look at what was going on in his heart. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Why? Did you need to know any more, Balaam? Or, or are you hoping that something is going to work out better to your advantage if you, if you have this second conversation with God? And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to you to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. And again, this sounds like he was obedient to God. He went with the princes of Moab. But look at verse 22. God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. So, so what, what went wrong here with Balaam? If you go back to verse 22 and you look at it carefully, God says, If the men come to you, rise and go with them. Balaam went with them. And again, I think it indicates his greedy eagerness to go with these men so it can be profitable for him. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. In Jude 11, verse 11, it says, he ran greedily into error. So there's no question from the New Testament comments, got to kind of try to piece it together, but he was after the silver and the gold. He was, he was after the wages of unrighteousness. And Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things the Lord hate, yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that are swift in running to evil. Jude again, verse 11 says, He ran greedily into error. So what happens next is comical, right? Balaam meets a talking, talking donkey, and you and think we have a little picture of this. This is the original donkey. He was not alone, right? He was not alone. His servants were with him, and it was a journey that none of them would ever forget. And it's in a very amusing story, and the critics, critics of the Bible love to mock this. You know, a talking donkey, give me a break. But a miracle-performing God can do anything he wants to do that is consistent with his holy nature. He has complete mastery over the animal kingdom. He brought the animals to Noah. He created them all. In the case you don't know, I must tell you that, that donkeys do not naturally sp speak, right? They bray with the characteristic what? Hee-haw. So here's the irony in the story. Balaam, who described himself as one whose eyes are open in Numbers 24.3, does not actually see the spiritual realm 
clearly. He doesn't see it at all. He doesn't see it at all. The donkey saw it, but Balaam did not. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and that's why he went down. What did Balaam see? Silver and gold, right? And I think, you know, the story is just so true to life. Riches blind people to spiritual realities. All they see is the silver and gold. All they see is what the silver and gold will get them in this world. That's it. And it's interesting here that the angel of the Lord is described as an adversary. In Hebrew, the word is Satan. We pronounce it Satan. Satan is an adversary. But in this instance, the angel of the Lord is the adversary. So God came out against Balaam the same way that Satan comes out against us. God allows Satan to come out against people, to be their adversary. But when God becomes your adversary, you're in real real big trouble. And I think the most amusing thing in this story is, is not the donkey talking to Balaam, but Balaam talking to the donkey. I mean, almost as if it's normal. You know, he gets angry with the donkey and he's you know, going to beat the donkey. And the story ends with Balaam going with the princes of Balak. And in chapters 23 and chapters 24, we find some of the oracles of, of Bala, Balaam. And I don't have time to read all of this and to get into all the details. But they're very interesting. So I, I would encourage you, and they're very difficult to understand. Take the time sometime and read these chapters, 22, 23, and 24. We're just going to present some gleanings from Balaam's oracles. Numbers 23, verses 1 through 10 would be the first section that you would find this. And, and I'm just going to bring out the highlights. Number 1, in verse 8, we'll begin in verse 7, Balaam could not curse Israel. He wanted to. He would have profited greatly. In Numbers 23, 7, it says, and he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. Numbers 23.8 says, his reply, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Secondly, Balaam declares that Israel is unique among the nations. I mean, this is pretty remarkable considering the source, right? In verse 9, Numbers 23, From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Israel had a massive congregation of people in the wilderness. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. They are a nation unto themselves. They are separate from the nations of the world, all the pagan nations. God did that. 
That's what it means to be holy. It means to be separate from sin. And they were called to be a holy nation. To be completely separated from the sinful, wicked nations that were all around them. But the real distinction, the real distinction of Israel is the God who chose them. So whenever anyone comes against Israel, they're coming against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Numbers chapters 23, verses 18 through 24. Here's what we find in that oracle. Verse 19. God is always faithful to his word. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do or perform it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? You could take that to the bank, right? God is always faithful to his word. And this is why, this is why it's so incredible that we not only read the Bible, but understand the Bible and understand the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. God promises he made to other individuals and the promises he made to us. Secondly, the blessing of God is irrevocable. Verse 20, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. As much as Balaam would have wanted Desire to do that. He couldn't do it. I can't reverse the blessing of God upon these people. The blessing of God is irrevocable. Thirdly, he says, God is with them. Verse 21. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. Then you get to Numbers chapter 24. Israel will be blessed in the land that God has given them. Now remember, this is 1400 BC. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord like cedars beside the waters. All of this is pointing to, to prosperity, to a, to a bountiful harvest that when they get in the land. He will pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog and his kingdom will be exalted. Eventually it will, right? And then Balaam invokes the promise to Abraham. Numbers 24, 9. Blessed is he who blessed you, blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Then you get over to Numbers chapter 24. And here's the, here's the Christmas connection. Verse 15. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. After all this, what, a, what an amazing 
privilege that was given to him to understand these things. And yet his heart was utterly corrupt. Numbers 24, 17, he says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's not near at hand. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. What, what an amazing prophecy from a pagan. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, tribe of Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him will be the obedience of the people. Shiloh has been a controversial word. People trying to define exactly what it means. It was a location in the Old Testament, a city where the tabernacle resided for a time. And most of the occurrences in the Old Testament of Shiloh are speaking about this place. But this, this predated that. So many scholars believe the meaning, the meaning of the word Shiloh is until he comes to whom it belongs. And I think what he's speaking about is royal dignity. Royal dignity would reside with the tribe of Judah. And it did until Judah was made a Roman province in 6 AD. That was during the early days of the life of Jesus. Shiloh had come. People were looking for him. But it is the Messiah, no, no ruler in Israel, no king of Israel, not even David. It was the Messiah who has the true right to take the throne and to hold the scepter. He has the right to rule as lawgiver with the full obedience of the nations. It's pretty remarkable, really, that prophecy. And to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He will have the scepter. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forevermore. What, what did Balaam say? Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he is not near at hand. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will arise out of Israel. So he's saying a star is going to come to Jacob. I don't see him. It's far off. I don't see him now in 1400 BC, but he's coming. He's coming to Israel. This is not the star that the Mag Magi 
you know, saw. Some of the early church fathers likened it unto that. But in Revelation 22, 16, it says, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning, what? Star. The bright and morning star. A scepter will arise out of, out of Israel, Balaam said. Listen, the one who holds the scepter has the power to crush his enemies and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. The full obedience of the people. Micah 4.1 says, In the last days it will come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the top of the mountains and it will be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. The Gentile nations of the world will flow into it. And many nations will come and say, Come. There's your word again, Josh. Come. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law will go forth out of Zion. That's Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge among many people. He will rebuke strong nations afar off, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. When the star comes, when the one who holds the scepter comes, and that's when Israel's wars will cease. Not until then. That's when warfare as we know it will be ended because the Prince of Peace has come and the judgment of the sheep and the goats has taken place. Revelation eleven fifteen, and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, this makes me a little emotional. <laughs> it is really easy to get upset when you look at everything that is happening in this world. It's utterly corrupt. It's utterly wicked. Hollywood, the universities, politics, everything. And, and you, you could sit and drink from that dire hose of, bad in, of all that wicked information and it's just going to get you depressed and, and because you can't change it. You absolutely cannot do anything to stop the advancement of evil in this world. We pray that we would be separate from it. But God says, evil men are going to get worse and worse. And it's going to continue and multiply. So you need to back away from all of that and you need to remember this. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ 
and he shall reign forever and ever, and we will reign with him. We are on the winning team. We're on the winning side. So it doesn't, doesn't bother me a bit what people would say about me or about Christianity or the church or about Jesus. He is going to rule and reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word this morning, this reminder that comes, comes from a wicked man. A wicked man who was compelled by you to tell the truth and could not refrain from doing so. Many people in the world today are cursing Israel. They don't realize they're bringing judgment upon themselves. Lord, we pray. We pray that many of the, the Jewish people in the world and many of these fighting in the current war in Israel or in Hamas, against Hamas in Gaza will come to see them, the true Messiah, will be saved before they face a Christless eternity. Calm our hearts. And in this special time of the year, when the world is just not worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and, and not really celebrating his birth, but they've secularized everything. Help us to keep our focus. Help us to keep it simple. And to just be at peace in our own hearts because of all that you have accomplished through the birth and through the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven waiting the time when he will make his enemies his footstool. He will utterly crush his enemies. We praise you Lord Jesus and again we just offer our sincere thanks for your blood that has forgiven us of all of our iniquities. The blood shed on the cross of Calvary. I pray all of this in, in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen.